welcome to the second edition of 2020 Politics <laughs> War Room. James, I thought we had peaked with Nancy Pelosi last week, but you know, we're in Pittsburgh tonight, and that's almost as good as Speaker Pelosi. Yeah, it was a great night. I had a, it had a good time. It was a good crowd. It was a provocative conversation. Uh, I, I thought it was great. I mean, there's just so much interest in this election. People here were very passionate and they're very informed, and it was it was a lot of fun. And it's one of the great cities in America. It is. Pittsburgh, it Pennsylvania. Is. I, really love, is. I love Pittsburgh. Absolutely. Now let's turn it over to our esteemed, and I mean esteemed moderator, David Tribman, the editor emeritus of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. What's emeritus mean? James? I don't know. I want to be that. Though. I like yeah. the word. It's I very, mean. very, very prestigious to be emeritus. <laughs> I think you're too young to be emeritus. <laughs> Well, good evening, everybody. Yeah. Well, uh, welcome to this uh, election 2020 presidential uh, conversation presented by the Post-Gazette and sponsored by Highmark. And uh, this is a conversation that the three of us have been having for about 35 years. We've just in invited 750 of our closest friends to join us. Well, I'm David Shribman. I'm the executive editor emeritus of the Post-Gazette, and I'm uh, delighted to have two of my Friends here to my right, to your left, is Al Hunt, uh, who has uh, had several uh, um, titles, but the one that's important to me is that he was the uh, Washington bureau chief of the, of the Wall Street Journal um, when he hired me 35 years ago. Um, he's made some better judgments since then, and we'll expect to... So have you. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. And, and to my left, to your right, is James Carville, whom I first met in 1991 during that special Senate election, isn't that right? I think you were here for 91 for the Harris-Wofford-Dick uh, Thornburg um, election. And um, James, of course, is the, uh, is the genius who came up with the greatest definition of uh, Pennsylvania politics that you all know, and it is what, James? Thank you. I, I did, well, the original quote was, is that Pennsylvania from Paoli to Penn Hills was Alabama without black people, but it got compressed to be in <laughs> Pittsburgh and, and Philadelphia and Alabama in the middle, but I think the Alabama parts now go to the Ohio border. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a kind of a precursor of the kind of evening we're going to have you, uh, <laughs> the three of us. Um, you may have noticed that uh, James uh, favors uh, Louisiana State University, which is uh, now we're an accredited university, isn't it, James? What, what <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, uh, it's a university with a football for the football team, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We reportedly have a, a football team. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we reportedly have a game Saturday. <laughs> yes, and uh, the two of them are great fans of the uh, Washington Nationals, um, and. Uh, We will have a pennant here sometime in the 21st century. Uh, and maybe, Al, you can tell us what it's like. But uh, Albert and I were talking just the other day, and he, he told me that the um, Nationals pennant was the greatest sporting moment of his life. And you grew up in Philadelphia. You've seen some, uh, saw some World Series there, right? I think it's the greatest sports narrative uh, that I've ever, not only I've experienced, I think that has existed. There were better teams. But this was a team that came from behind. They were 19 and 31 in May. And in, and in five elimination games in the playoffs, five, they were behind in the seventh inning. If they lost, they were gone. I mean, something like that's never happened before. And they frankly beat a team that was probably better. So I loved it. But I love being in Pittsburgh. And I love, imagine, you know, sitting here where, you know, two legends have been. I mean, Troy Palmalo and Jerome the Bus Bettis. I That's mean, right. that, man, it That's doesn't right. get any better than that. 
Heinz Field. I never thought I'd make this, David. It's great to be here. Well, you here. know, Al, after this, a few people will probably come up to you and talk to you about the greatest sports uh, event that ever occurred, and they may tell you what happened a half a block from here, and they also mention, may mention the year 1960. They mentioned, may mention September 13th. I saw, I, I saw, was it Bill? What's that last name again? The, the <laughs> and David on, David talked about football. David is so excited. I mean, James going to watch the LSU Alabama game this weekend. David can't wait for that Dartmouth Brown game. It's going to just be, oh my God. Well, it's wow. actually, it's the Dartmouth Princeton game books. this year. And it's at, um, uh, this Saturday, it's at Yankee Stadium. Al, you going to be there? I'm not sure there are any tickets left, so. I think. <laughs> uh, and you guys both have seats together. I've sat with you at the uh, Nationals Park. And um, uh, James, is that your favorite sport, or is uh, politics your favorite sport? I like everything. I mean, I'm not one of these people that is an exclusive person. I love politics. I love baseball. I love football. I love basketball. I love history. I mean, I'm just not a, I like a lot of things. Uh, before we get started, I want my friends from the AP government class at Seneca Valley High is here. Or here. Let's, why don't y'all stand up and give these young people a round of applause, please. And uh, I, I would point out that my son-in-law-to-be is a graduate of Pitt. So, wow, Pitt's it, going to be in our family. <laughs> I have good news for all of you. We're going to be providing simultaneous translation for uh, everything that he has to say. <laughs> and, um, and there'll be subtitles a little bit later. It's kind of like the Pittsburgh Opera. Go ahead, Al. Well, this is a twofer for us. This great audience, this great chance to come to Pittsburgh. And also, we began last weekend a podcast, uh, which is called 2020 Politics War Room. Uh, with two old guys, uh, and uh, our first, you know, you're only second, but our first guest was the Speaker of the House, and our second is David Shribben, so I think we're off to a pretty good start well, this weekend on Apple Podcast. So, 2020, um, how's that look so far, guys? Well, I don't think my view of the 2020 election is this. The Republicans cannot win. However, the Democrats can lose it. Uh, it is literally there for the taking. I mean, the country is exhausted. It doesn't want to continue down this path. But if you look at the UK, Boris Johnson is a fool. He came comb his hair. I don't have that problem. <laughs> and people are switching parties in the middle of his speech, yet he's probably going to win the election in December because the Labor Party and Jeremy Coburn have made themselves unacceptable. And what worries me is that the Cobernization of the Democratic Party, that you just go so far left, you just chase you, you, the, all this leftist stuff, and you become unacceptable to people. And that, frankly, bothers me a great deal, and I think that's an instructive lesson that we're seeing across the pond, if you will. And we have to, just because people want to vote for us, we got to we earn their votes and we got to have policies that are aggressive and can work and that people in a lot of, look, I'm a liberal. I am not a leftist. And I think people like the idea uh, of wealthy people paying more in taxes. I think they like the idea of expanding Obamacare. I think they like the idea of, you know, that the country's been rebalanced in favor of the powerful and we need to, 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 to move away from that. 
But I don't think the country wants to drive off of the, the left cliff. And as this process evolves, I think Democrats owe it to the country and to the party to be very careful who they select and the reasons that they do. And we've got to win this election. This country, we can't take this anymore. We have a career criminal in the White House. I mean, that's just what we do. That's what he is. There's no other, no other description. There's no other description of him, and he keeps committing crimes. I mean, you can see it. So I'm, I'm, I like where we are. I like, the, I like the potential we have. I think we actually have the potential to have like a 2008 year. But we're, we're trying to talk our way out of it. I think we're, we're going to try to talk our way into a 2008 year. I think we could pick up six Senate seats. I think it's possible. But we got to be a party, you know, just in Kentucky, you know, we're carrying northern Kentucky now. These were the first counties in Kentucky to, to, to turn away from the Democrats. I mean, we're, we're, we're in suburbs in Dallas and Houston and Orange County, California. We don't want to drive these voters off. We want to keep them, we want to keep them close to us. We want their vote. They're, 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 you know, so we've got to keep moving here. So, Al, when, I, when you first hired me in 1984, your friend, um, Bob Novak, many of you remember Robert Novak from the... Prince of Darkness. Yeah, the Prince of Darkness. Um, came up to me and said, you know, you've gone to work for Al Hunt. He is so far left that East Germany is his favorite country. <laughs> Do you agree with James about the Democrats not going too far yeah, left? Yeah, it's a lot better if we disagree, but, but we don't at all on this. Um, Novak, <laughs> the story about Novak, at one point, we were covering the 80 campaign together, and we were out covering a John Anderson rally in Wheaton Mill, Illinois, and he said, can you give me a ride back in the city? He had come in with the Anderson bus, and I said, sure. So he sat in the back seat, uh, and he typed, and then he bitched at me, and we went through a tunnel, and it was dark. So he said, all right, I'll buy you dinner. And he said, you know, you are, you know, really, what's your favorite country? Why, who asks people questions like that? What's your favorite country? I wasn't going to give him a serious answer. So I said, East Germany, and I forgot about it. Years later, someone's doing a profile of me, and they said, I understand you have a great interest in global geography. <laughs> I said, no, I don't think particularly. He said, well, I heard you're particularly infatuated with communist East Germany, a goddamn Novak. Uh, no, I agree with, I really agree with everything James said. I, uh, I have now become a columnist, and I consider myself a liberal columnist, and anyone who reads it knows. Uh, and I think that if you look at what Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and Michael Bennett, and you name the others, are proposing, it is a really, really left-of-center, progressive, liberal policy on taxes, on health care. Hold it, Al. You're talking about the centrists and saying they're leftists. Well, that's what I, and, 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 and what bothers me is, somehow there's this, this total misperception that the Democratic Party has moved way far left. Well, some of the Twitter types have moved, well, you know, far to the left. Elizabeth Warren's a better candidate than any of the other as a pure candidate. But if you look, I mean, there's tests to look at. Forget polls. Look at the 2018 elections. They tell you something. Democrats picked up 43 seats, most that were previously held by Republicans. Almost every one of those seats was won by what might be termed a, a mainstream progressive. And in many instances, they defeated Bernie people in the primaries. I mean, Connor Lamb from nearby here really personifies that kind of class. And, and that's what I think is the rank and file Democrats, but somehow that hadn't gotten translated. And, uh, and I agree with James, if they keep it up, I mean, people want to have better health care. They want to build an Obamacare, most people do. They want to have cheaper drug prices. I don't think a whole lot of people say, hey, you know what, I want the government to take away my private insurance. I just don't think that's 
a winning argument. So, James, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Orange County a few minutes ago. That used to be the reddest of the red, although not red communists, but uh, most Republican area in the country. And every one of the Republican members of Congress lost in, in 2018 to complete Democratic sweep. What does that tell you? Well, I mean, but it, that, that, that was true in the suburbs in, in South Carolina, in Oklahoma, in Dallas, Houston, right? Philadelphia, New Jersey, literally what the party did, and Albert's exactly right, after 2016, said, let's go out and recruit really experienced people, CIA agents, military officers, business people, you name it, and let's talk about things that matter to people. But we did it, and we had the highest turnout in an off-year election since 2014, the biggest margin ever in an off-year election. And the day after, the day after, we start all this crazy stuff that we're going to take health insurance away from 156 million people? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, we ran a play, and we went 72 yards. And somebody comes back in the huddle and say, let's try a different. No, let's run that one again. That one worked pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it, but everybody middle. wants to be a genius. You, you, sometimes in politics, you, you don't need to be a genius. You just got to look and say, damn. Damn, let's do this again. <laughs> well, damn. Uh, let's have Bradshaw throw another one. <laughs> you know, James, you, you won that 1991 special election here on health care, right? So health care has been a big, important issue for 27 years now, right? Right. And you think the Democrats have gone too far? Well, it's not. People, you can expand it. You can do a public option. You can do anything. If you go and take 156 million private health insurance policies and Tell somebody, tell an Allegheny County fireman, a sheriff's deputy, well, you don't have your health insurance anymore. You're going to go into Medicare, and it's going to cost you more, but over, no worry, over a lifetime, you're going to save more. Come, in here, come on. That's not going to work. That's not going to remotely work. And, and immigration, we're sitting there, we actually had a debate as to whether or not the terrorists that kill those people in Boston can vote from his jail cell. You say, look, when these people we kill come back and vote, then he can vote. Till they vote, he ain't voting. I mean, that's not a liberal left-wing policy. In, in whatever, everything that we're saying is being recorded. And the one thing I do know about politics is the other side gets to play too. They, they're gonna, they're gonna, if you don't, if you don't do, they're gonna do the math for you in the, in the interest groups. And I don't, I have no idea of what are you gonna do with the market cap of every health insurer in the country. They're gonna, you're gonna run them out of business. I don't think they're gonna go gently into that long good night. Uh, I really don't. And so what happens is, so then you get the kind of commentariat on the left saying, well, it's, it's, it probably won't happen anyway. Well, why beat for something that's not gonna happen is gonna hurt you? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. That's the dumbest answer I've ever heard in my life. Well, don't pay attention to it because they won't pass it anyway. But that's not a very illuminating. David, answer. let me make the, this Pennsylvania censure, because we do agree, and I'll talk about Trump for a minute, too. You know, if you look at this state, it's fascinating, because if you go back to 1988, Michael Dukakis was running. He was not exactly what you call a cultural conservative, right? 
Look at Washington, Westmoreland counties outside of here, working class counties. They voted for Dukakis, 57-43. The Philadelphia Main Line. West Virginia voted for Dukakis. The Volvo driving, you know, L.L. Bean wearing Main Line. I don't know any of those people. Uh, they <laughs> voted for George H.W. Bush, 57-43. By 2008, 2012, it reversed. Well, if the Democratic Party persists in going too far, I hate to use these left-right terms, but that's what it is, I don't think a candidate's going to do any better in Washington, Westmoreland, and they're going to do a hell of a lot worse in Montgomery, and Delaware, and Chester. And 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 the opposite. What we're we're neglecting this conversation so far, though. James started with Trump is so vulnerable. I have never seen a more vulnerable incumbent. He's got a 41% approval rating. He's got 56% of the people who say they you know can't stand him, don't want to vote for him. Those are not winning numbers. But Albert, Albert. And 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 so therefore, but you have to but you have to beat him, and you have to run on a sensible platform to beat him. Don't let him dominate the dialogue by talking about what crazy things you're trying to do. But Al. Of, of my many character flaws, the greatest may be that I remember everything you ever said. <laughs> and in 1987, 1988, you said, you said that George H.W. Bush was the weakest presidential candidate you'd ever seen. Well, they were weakers, but he was weak. Uh, but I didn't know then that Michael Dukakis was going to be weaker. Okay. Uh, so I, I think it is. Oh, you know, I, did, I, I, I have to tell this Pittsburgh story. I mean, David, when David first was coming to Pittsburgh, I called his home and I got his daughter, who was then, Natalie was about nine, ten then. Uh, she was about eight or nine, yeah. And I said, Natalie, this is such great news and it's so exciting. You're going to move to Pittsburgh. It'll be a whole, it'll just be great. And nine-year-old Natalie said to me, if you love it so much, why don't you do it? Uh, <laughs> and I want to tell you, she now wears black and gold steeler on her, on her uh, you know, she rabbi goes. now. No one, she's gone so native, she makes David look like an outsider. Well, there you go. You know, um, uh, not everyone in our audience is a liberal and an opponent of Trump. And one of our guests, uh, guys, uh, had this question. What happens when the public awakens to the impeachment charade aimed at overthrowing a duly elected president? Well, then I think your complaint is really with James Madison and Alexander Hamilton uh, because, you know, there is a provision. And, and Al knew both of them. I, I called him Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a, you know, there's a provision. And the question is not, is an impeachment by itself illegitimate? Of course it's not. I mean, we've done it three times or we've had that process three times uh, before. Uh, the question is, is there, are, there, are there grounds? And uh, if you look at the question of abuse of power or obstruction of justice or contempt of Congress, all of which were a basis for bills of impeachment for both Nixon and Clinton, uh, I think you certainly can make, you certainly can say there's a case. You can argue whether it's persuasive or not, compelling or not, impeachable or not. I have one view. Uh, the questioner may have another. But it's not a frivolous exercise. It's a very serious, deserved exercise. James? Look, it's simple. We know what happened. There was a duly authorized congressional appropriation of $400 million to the Ukraine. The president held it up and said, if you don't investigate my political opponent, I'm not going to give you this money. He doesn't have that option. That's not the law of the land. Congress in the Constitution is given the right to appropriate. He is supposed to execute faithfully the laws of the United States. Right? He, the idea that a president is using his power to advance his political agenda with a foreign power, and, and, and at that, a really vulnerable power of which the United States policy has been eminently clear for I don't know how long. If that's not an impeachable offense, I don't know what is. And there's not any doubt about the facts. 
And by the way, there's not, not a remote doubt about the facts. There's no one, no one denies what happened. And the, to the extent that people were, they, well, no quid pro quo. And of course, Ambassador Sunderland, lawyer, said, uh, you want to be Roger Stone? Uh, you want to tell the truth. And he decided that he didn't want to be Roger Stone. <laughs> and he decided he wanted to tell the truth. But that, that's what happened. Now, you can say, I don't care if, if, he, if he does it, if I, if he, that Congress appropriates something. I don't like Congress anyway. You can say that, but that's, the, that's not the law. That's, that's not what the Constitution says. They have the sole right for appropriation. So, and you don't have the option. You have the, you're supposed to faithfully execute the laws of the United States. You know, I had a conversation the other day, Al, with um, uh, Rick Perlstein, who wrote the uh, book uh, Nixonland. Yeah, yeah. And he said he thought it was very dangerous uh, for Congress to impeach the president on this one count because it would go down in history that that was the only bad thing he did. Do you think this is dangerous? For the dangerous, and are they are the Democrats um, hitching their their uh, wagon to only one item when they they might have others? Well, I'd love to talk to Rick about that because I have a great deal of respect for him. But he, I'm sure, he could tell you that in 1974 the Judiciary Committee threw out three or four charges right. of impeachment but they because had three. they said it was maladministration, which is what George Mason tried to put into the Constitution. And Madison and others said, no, that's policy. We don't do policy. So I think there will be, first of all, there'll be more than one count. It'll be, it'll be Ukraine-centered. There'll be an obstruction of justice count, I, I think, in contempt of Congress, whether they're combined or not. And that may well include other things. But I think to try to, you know, overcomplicate this is a mistake. And I, they didn't do that in 74. They really made the case. And, and let me tell you something else, because I was there, unfortunately. I wasn't there for Madison, but I was there for the, I covered the House Judiciary Committee in 74. And one week before they voted, they voted on July 27th, one week, that outcome wasn't certain. There were a group of Republicans and Democrats, Southern Democrats and Republicans like Bill Cohen and Tom Railsback. And what happened was they got together and they had been focused on the pieces. And then they looked at the whole and they said, my God, of course this is an impeachable offense. So I, I think static analysis is dangerous here. I don't know how things will evolve. Yeah, the conventional wisdom, House will impeach, Senate will acquit. That may happen. But we know a lot more today than we knew three or four weeks ago. And I don't know if there's any reason to think we're not going to know more three or four weeks from now. Well, I want you to try this. Try this defense. Yana only robbed one bank. How far is that going to get you? <laughs> All right. and, and the idea that, he has, that that's the only thing he did is... It, it, Ludicrous. Then the problem is this. They put the call in a deep server inside the White House. What do you think the chances are that the Ukrainians don't have a tape of this call? Zero. What are the chances that they hadn't sold it to the Saudis and the Russians and the Chinese and everybody else to blackmail the United States? Very, very, very high. I've worked in the Ukraine. Right? The, the eastern Ukraine, Russia supplies the heat in the wintertime. All they say is, you give us the, you give us the, the tape of the call, or you'll freeze. Guess what? You get the tape of the call. It's just the way the world works. And the reason that people are coming forward, and the one thing that they write about, the one thing they write about, it's the deep state. This is the revenge of the GS-17s. You got Foreign Service officers, you got CIA agents been working all their lives, and they see this, they don't like it. They don't like it. 
and I don't blame them. And it's going to keep coming, and it's not just going to be this. That there's more coming down the pike. They also got. I mean, Robert Mueller laid out ten instances of obstruction of justice. I mean, read the. They keep saying read the Mueller report. Well, read the Mueller report. I mean, he was very clear in that. And now, whether or not you you can die by there, but whatever. But the, the idea that the president of the United States was trading constitutionally designated duties for his own personal gain is, is hideous. If you, if, you're a, if you run a corporation, you run a U.S. Steel, and you say, if you tell a, a supplier, look, I'll pay you more if you get my kid in Carnegie Mellon. That's wrong. You're going to get fired for that. You use, you're using the stockholders and the boards giving you authority, and you're using that for your personal gain. You can't do that. It's simple. That's not even a close call. I mean, yes, can a president wheel and deal in foreign policy? And sometimes that they make a bad deal. And, but you're supposed to have the interests of the United States at heart. That, that's, that's, that's the deal. That goes right at the core of what the founders go to the Federalist 73. That goes right at the core of what they did not want. James, you're probably the smartest political strategist around. I don't say much about the other political strategists, but anyway, it's like being the smartest of the three stooges. You got, somebody got to win. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, one, thing, one thing we won't call you is Curly. <laughs> so, James, is it possible that impeachment will backfire and help reelect Trump? Okay. Let, all right. This is the story. I was invited to the Oxford Union and I wanted to debate impeachment. This was in July. Said, and I said, I want to argue no. Because there's only one moral imperative in this country, one, and that is to get this career criminal out of the White House. I, it, and I thought it was bad politics. And when this story broke, if you go look at the New York Times on the day it broke, I said, let the Senate stew in this. This, this is, I think, good politics. There's not a, 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 a House Democrat that is remotely nervous about this vote. You, Susan Collins, is in, she's hibernating with the bears in the north woods of Maine right now. <laughs> she's so scared. All right? Martha McSally don't know where to go. They're hiding. Tom Tillis, or Cory Gardner, or Joni Ernst. You saw she, she, she turned whiter than Al Hunt when she got asked a question about it. I thought she was going <laughs> to. Jesus, man. That woman lost all the blood in her face. So I, I think that, I'm not worried. I think in the reason that I support this, it was a horrible act. This, the politics of this are good. They, they're, they're very favorable. Al, do you and agree? You can see that. Do, yeah, I agree. But there's anybody, there's a bunch of people from Connor Lamb's district here. He voted for that. He voted for that inquiry. Does anybody here think that's going to hurt him? It hurt Andy Bashir. I knew Connor Lamb's grandfather. That's how far I go back. I remember Tom Forrester. I remember Mayor Calgary. I, I remember Bob used to work with all these guys in Pittsburgh. I loved this place. I had, I had tons of good friends here. You're uh, such Frank a kid. Lucino. I remember Pete Flaherty. <laughs> I tell you, so I tell you stories. Uh, so I had Oreo, so Frank's brother, Larry Lucchino, was the president of Oreo. So I called Frank and I said, I want a season tickets for the Orioles game. He said, all right. So I get the tickets. I'm like midway down the first baseline of 10 rows up. 
Jesus, man. So thank you, Frank. So he called me. He said, James, I need a favor. I said, oh, my God. He wants a meeting with a Saudi oil prince or something. I said, yeah, what is it, Frank? He said, there's something called the National Library Board. And the president has like 10 appointees. I said, Frank, we can handle that. <laughs> and they just love libraries. And he wanted to be on the the library board. So I got my Orioles tickets and he got a seat on the library board. That's politics. I mean, that, that's that, that, that back and forth. That's hardly like a, a scandal of the first order. But this is way beyond the pall of anything that I've seen. Way beyond. And this is not like horse trading or, you know, you do this, I'll do that. This is I'm holding up 400 billion constitutionally authorized past dollars to, either, to advance my political yeah, yeah, and, interests. And, and James, I mean, I think, you know, people say, all right, quid pro quo happens. It happens, yeah. If you say to a foreign government, you know, we are gonna go and we're gonna cut your aid as long as you're throwing all those Muslims in prison, as long as you're torturing people, that is US policy. That's a legitimate quid pro quo, you know, you don't, Torture people, you get more aid, fine. This wasn't that. This was, hey, smear my opponent for my own political campaign, my political gain. That is quite different. That's profoundly different. That rise, that's why people talk about abuse of power. I promise you, before this is over, I'm going to raise an issue or two that James and I disagree on. Okay, so let's go ahead to the Senate. Um, somebody told me the other day that he thought that, the, that if two or three senators, beginning with Mitt Romney, begin to fold, that there'll be a cascade of more than 20 because they'll feel safe in a group. What do you think? Rob Portman, uh, Murkowski, Oh, uh, those, Dar those Dartmouth guys always yeah, yeah, yeah. stand up, don't they? Uh, profiles encourage No, 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 seriously. Daniel Webster, where are you when we need you? Uh, I knew Daniel uh, Webster. Uh, but, uh, I mean, uh, Rob Portman said the other day, yeah, it was quid pro quo, but that's okay. I mean, I, I, I think there's two things, there's, there's two things to watch for as far as that's concerned. Number one is what happens. Again, static analysis. You know, what do we know three or four weeks from now that we don't know now? How much more comes out? James is right. The deep state's got a lot of stuff. I, deep state to me are admirable career public servants like William Taylor. But what else comes out? The second thing to watch for in a narrower sense is look at filing deadlines. I don't know when filing deadlines are, but there are a number of Republicans who have a private vote would vote, I think, um, you know, for it would be one of those 20. But if they have to face Republican, any, any chance of Republican primary, they're scared to death, including Rob Portman, who doesn't face one. Doesn't face one, that's right. I mean, look, they don't want to make this vote. A lot of them don't want to make this vote, you know, so they tend, and, and McConnell has got to protect his incumbents, just like Pelosi has to protect her incumbents. She knows it's not, this is not detrimental to, to her incumbents that ran in, in these districts that Trump carried. I mean, they just know that. And, and they're going to try to figure some way, you know, they want to do a censure resolution. Uh, that's, that's stupid. Don't do that. Force them to vote. This is democracy. It's in the Constitution. I mean, this has to, the country has to confront this. And it has to have, there has to have a result. And it just so, and look, if I thought the politics was bad, I'm so, I'm, 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 I would change my mind. I would change my mind. You think the politics are really good? I think the politics is fine. And, and I think that the, the moral imperative on a scale of one to 10 is 12. The politics is a six. How many, can I do this, David? Go ahead. How many people here 
favor impeachment? Raise your hand. Don't look to your left or right. How many people here think impeachment is a mistake? Raise your hand. Don't look to your left or right. Man, what a bunch of lefties. People, yeah. Uh, I mean, man. These are our people. It, you know what? That's all college-educated people. That's typical anywhere you go. How many people here don't have a college degree? Okay. The high school students. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, this is not a sample of Western Pennsylvania. This is a, sam a highly educated sample of people from Allegheny County. If that vote had gone the other way, it would underscore the point that impeachment is dicey, though. Right. Yeah. Okay. So... About three years ago, our common friend, Peter Hart, who was a Democratic pollster, came to town, and he had a focus group, and he invited me to watch through a, a one-way mirror there. And uh, I came away, it was a bunch of undecided voters from, uh, from Allegheny and Westmoreland County. And I came away, guys, saying to my other colleague, Trump's gonna win Pennsylvania. Will Trump win Pennsylvania next time? No, I don't think so. I'll tell you why. The Democrat, what bothers me, I, I became a, re, a Democrat when I was young for the reason that most people become a Democrat in their youth. I just don't hate anybody. I, I just was like 15 years old growing up in South Louisiana in, uh, four and 50, in 1959 or whatever, and I just said, these black people are getting the shaft here. This is not right. So I just became a Democrat. But... Well, how many Republicans were there in your hometown? Eight? You know, my, my great-grandfather my great was a Republican member of the Louisiana legislature during Reconstruction. My aunt was the only registered Republican on the Mississippi River between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. But I, I, I didn't just become a Democrat. I became a liberal, okay? I, I, I was very pro-civil rights. But why do people, I'm a rural white, why do we hate rural whites? But why do we just lump rural whites into, you know, some of us went to college, some of us didn't, some of us are married, some of us are not, some of us go to church, some of us don't, some of us have guns, others don't. And it's become fashionable within the urban element of the Democratic Party to generalize about rural people. And we got to go out and, and, and reestablish it. We, we can beat out there 85-15. If we change this to 75-25, you change sea level. I don't want to be a part of a political party that is contemptuous of a group of people, particularly a group of people that I'm, a, I'm part of. I don't like that. Now, I understand that you've you got a lot of things to do, but we, we're never going to carry this in the foreseeable future. But we've got to be aggressive. You, you go look what happened in Kentucky, and I was very close to that campaign. You know, Hillary lost Pike County by 85-15. I think Andy got like 42%. And he went out there and vigorously campaigned and, and, and part of that. You cannot, ab if you're a Democrat, you don't write people off. The idea of being a Democrat is, is that we're all people. And these urbanists, they have this idea that this great revolution is coming and they tell people we're the young, we're the diverse, we're the hip, we're the educated, we're the cool. And you know, people hear that and they don't like it. And my daughter goes to LSU, she's one of these sororities, they all five, eight, and weigh 124 pounds and wear Rolexes and drive, you know, Volvos, and everybody else hates them. And if you can understand why. <laughs> and in and, 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 and the Democrat apart, not, not Senator Casey, not by any stretch of the imagination, all right? Uh, you know, I was the first big win I ever had was, was Governor Casey here in Pennsylvania. But I never grew up 
or never was a part of my political career where I was contemptuous of anybody. In this urbanism that's creeping in the party, people are seeing this and they don't like it. And we're just driving people away on, on, on some idea of the, the, the demographic changes that have come to America are going to happen, and that's fine. You know what? Think of this. 18% of the United States elects 52 senators. That's right. 18% of the United States elects 52 senators. You can get all the votes you want in Boston and New York and Philadelphia and San Francisco and everywhere else. It would do you any good. And we want to be a majoritarian party. We don't want to be a fraternity. We don't want to be a club. We want everybody to be part of it. And we don't do that. And when you tell, when you point that out to people, they go, well, if you, you know, no. And it's supposed to Elizabeth Warren wins. And she comes back, and Nancy Pelosi comes back. But Mitch McConnell comes back. You know what's going to happen? Nothing. Zero. And it's all because people wanted to feel good about the demographics in the United States in 2030. And, and you're going to have this Supreme Court we got? Do you think anything, we'll have competent ambassadors, and that's great, and I like that, and we'll try to rebuild the morale of, of, of the CIA. I mean, I mean, that's fine. But if you, if you want to be a club, I don't want to be in a club. I want to be in a political party, <laughs> in a political party that has, that wants to win everywhere. That, that's my general view of things. David, if, if to go to your, you know, your question, if Trump carries Pennsylvania, he wins the election. I mean, I hate to say it about any one state, but if he carries Pennsylvania, he's going to be carrying Michigan and Wisconsin, too. That's right. And, and I don't see how you overcome that. So I think, you know, it would be bad. He's going to carry. I've got a, we work on a project. We're really going, I'm part of a group, and we're really working hard in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, places. We've got to cut these margins, folks. We just, we, we can't, we're, and, and if we don't, be competitive in these Senate seats. We got, you know, we got Senate seats up in North Carolina, Georgia. Uh, if Jim, we can get Jim Hood to run in Mississippi. In the, in the, and if you look at that, such a low turnout in the Delta, Democrats in Mississippi has, a, if all these hard red states, honestly, has the best chance to pick something up. You got to run in Texas, you got to run in Arizona, you got to run in Colorado, you got to run in Montana, you got to run in Iowa, you got to run in Maine. We got to keep a seat in Michigan, we got a, you know, maybe an outside chance, who knows, in Kentucky, probably not. But we got a lot of places that we got to compete that are not part of the hip, cool, urban movement here. We got to go out and fight for votes and, and talk about things that matter to people and the thing, just like we did in 2018. I mean, look what we did. And, and a lot of these people that voted Democratic did so because Trump drove them there. But these suburbanites, these, these people are not. They're not Democrats like I am. <laughs> they could, you, we could lose them tomorrow. I mean, we get them because, you know, Trump drove them to us. Well, we got to make them part of our political party. We're not, we're not an exclusive thing. We want more people in the club. Guys, um, how's Joe Biden doing? Al, how's, how's Joe Biden doing? Joe Biden is um, two weeks older than I am to the day. I know that because I covered him. <clears throat> and uh, I covered I went traveled with Ted Kennedy. We went to Delaware uh, right before the election in 72, and I said uh, to Senator Kennedy, showing all my great political wisdom, isn't this a wasted trip? He's running against a you know, reasonably popular incumbent. It's going to be a huge Republican year. This is kind of a waste of time. And Kennedy looked at me and said, oh, no, you watch. This kid's special. Every time I'm around Joe Kennedy or Joe Biden, he says, would you tell that Kennedy story again? <laughs> um, 
A good, uh, a good unnamed friend of mine with whom I do a podcast said to me, understanding I am two weeks uh, to the day of Joe Biden, said, Albert, if you told your wife, honey, I'm leaving for the next couple of months, I'm going out and we'll be campaigning 10, 12 hours a day all over the country because uh, I'm going to run for president of the United States, she would say, you goddamn de old fool, get back in the house. Uh, and I like Joe Biden a lot. Uh, I think, you know, at an appropriate time, he could have been a, or he might be still uh, a good president. But God damn it, I mean, it's really, it, it's a pro it shows. It really does show. Jimmy Carter said the other day, and Jimmy Carter is going to live to be 187, uh, said the other day, I couldn't be president at 80. Yeah. I, well, he couldn't be president I, look, at 56 said, either. I, but I said that, I told the New York Times. The only organization that has in this being run by 80-year-olds is the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> All right. The Mormon Church. It worked church, out the well church, out here so. in Pittsburgh, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, that, 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 I mean, you, you can't tell me that we can't, and, and I agree with Albert. He is the nicest man. He's honorable. He's, he, he's served this country for a long time. He is a very decent, accomplished man that has a lot more good in his career than bad. He, he understands things. We just we we, we got to we got to figure something else out here. I think. It, it, look, it, I, will I vote for him? I vote, I vote, like five times. I vote right now. If I thought it, it he'd be the best person to get Trump out, I'd vote for him in the Louisiana primary. But this is not optimal. If he gets the nomination, which I honestly doubt, as you can tell, um, he'll win. But boy, getting there is really tough. Yeah, he'd win, and, and I'd be I'd be I, I would be for him enthusiastically. And like I said, right now, everybody's running. I, I may very well vote for him just because my number one priority in, in ever is to get him to get this career criminal out of the White House any way we can. So Al, we've been talking about, you and I have been talking about Joe Biden for 35 years. He hasn't changed a whit, has he? Not a bit. No. No, he hadn't. He's authentic. I mean, Joe is authentic. Uh, uh, he is also undisciplined, and he was 35 years ago. Uh, and he is a guy who people love. He's, he gave the eulogy at Strom Thurmond's funeral. That's not a bad thing. That really is not a bad thing. Bill it, Clinton gave one at Richard Nixon's. Yeah, I, I, and, and it was Bill, it was actually President Clinton who, when the Nixon family said, you know, we're not sure we want to have a state funeral in essence, it was President Clinton who said, yes, you're going to do that, and I will be there. Which is, I mean, that's a good thing. That's not a bad, that's not a sellout. Uh, and Joe Biden giving the eulogy for Strom Thurmond is not a bad thing. I mean, if his position was the same as Strom Thurmond's, that would be a bad thing. Uh, but uh, but he's right, he hasn't changed, and that's the good th and news And you about never know what Joe Biden's going to say, right. right? It's the good news about Joe Biden, and it's the uh, disturbing news about Joe Biden. And you on Joe Biden, uh, on... What Joe Biden's like? About Biden? Yeah. I, mean, I think he is a, a, a really a marvelous human being. I, I think he's had a, a honorable life in American politics. I think he's too old. <laughs> I'm not very shy about saying it. However, I, that's not an impediment to me voting for him if he's a nominee at all. How warm and cozy, James, do you feel about uh, the senator from Vermont, Senator Sanders? So my favorite Bernie Sanders story is this. <laughs> he goes to South Carolina, and you, you, you'll understand this. If you were Southern, you would even understand it better. So he speaks at a black church. So he goes in, and 
They have like a church stuff. And he goes in and he promises them reparations and, and, and this and that, and he leaves. And they go and he said, well, he never like thanked the ladies that prepared the food. He never said anything. I mean, could you imagine Bill Clinton going to a black church and walking out and not, you know, having pictures with everybody in the world? I mean, Bernie Sanders spent his honeymoon in the Soviet Union. Okay, now wait a minute. So you get married and you said, hey, baby, <laughs> let's go get it on. I mean, geez. Let's go to Vladivostok. I, I, it's like, who in the world <laughs> would go to the Soviet Union on their honeymoon? He went to East Berlin, for God's sakes. Yeah. I just said, I like, I, it, I am not, I, look, I, I was asking, I hope he gets, I don't certainly wish him any ill. But, but no, I'm not, I'm, I, I am not a communist. I'm not a socialist. I'm just not. I'm just, I'm, I'm a liberal Democrat. Al, and, <laughs> Bernie Sanders. I, I mean, Bernie, <laughs> Bernie doesn't, Bernie loves policy. Uh, he's, I think he's quite devout in his views. I think they've been consistent for a long time. Doesn't much like people. Uh, and that's a little bit of a problem, you know, when you're in a people business. But, uh, you know, he's, um, he's Bernie. Yeah, that's a, the old sign about, the, you know, that love humanity and hate humans. It's, it, it's not a choice. You can love humans and love humanity. It's not like a either or. You can, it's not like well, I'm a baseball fan or a football fan. You can do both. In July, I like baseball. In November, I like football. What's wrong with that? Where'd you take your honeymoon, Damon? Me? Yeah. Calgary. <laughs> it's not the Soviet Union, no. but... <laughs> well, you, you had yours during the New York primary in 1980. Where'd you guys go? Well, we... <laughs> Terrible story. We got married equidistant, but my wife's a television reporter, and we got married equidistant between the, the uh, Pennsylvania and the New York primaries. That's how we picked the date, which is a little bit uh, unfortunate. Carter Kennedy was a really big deal for a while, a couple weeks. Uh, and so I called my wife and I said, you know, that January, there's snow and my mother has trouble getting around. I, I think we really ought to postpone the wedding. And she said, well, okay, uh, you know, we'd made plans. I was about to order the wedding invitation, so she, we agreed to postpone the wedding. Two weeks later, Carter said he wouldn't debate. There's a God in the heavens. I got punished for that. So I got married, and we ended up going for one night to the Eastern Shore. Well, I, I reminded Al of that when I walked into his office one day and told him that my wife was about to, was going to give birth the night of the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, you, you always had kids in election years. <laughs> I mean, a reporter having a kid in an election year, David Schrittman. <laughs> It only happened twice, Al. Come on. <laughs> All right, so who in the field, of the Democratic field, has been underrated so far and who still could make a splash? Anybody? Look, the, the levels of interest are so high. If you just look at the turnout in Kentucky, you look at the turnout in 2018, and, and we, we're not operating in a normal political environment. So if I name, obviously, uh, Mayor Pete is making a, a, a real thing. He, you know, he seems like a, a provocative, interesting person. That, you know, Senator Klobuchar. But uh, I, I personally, if one more person comes to me and tells me, well, James, you know Michael Bennett would be the best president. Well, shit, if he's going to be the best president, why don't we be for him? <laughs> or, or, you know, I, I like Governor Bush. There's a lot of people. I, I had high hopes for Senator Kamala Harris, and she just couldn't seem to fire but um, where she needed to. And, I, I, I like Senator Warren. I think she's really smart. I think she's like, I, I think her basic critique of the United States is spot on. I have no idea of why every 
goofy left-wing thing that piece of spaghetti they throw against a wall sticks. I, I, I don't understand it. It's like well, how'd she do? How would she do in Louisiana? You know, nobody's I mean, you want to go carry Louisiana? Should we carry Louisiana? We had 400 electoral votes. <laughs> but I mean, the problem is, how's she going to do? In North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, in Arizona, in Colorado, no, you, no, and you, I think she'd probably beat Trump. But and how will those Senate candidates do on the Senate? But James, and, you've mentioned Texas twice. Do you think Texas is going to turn? Of course, it's going to turn, and it's going to turn soon. It was there was two and a half points, and and what happened in Texas, and this has happened around the country. Everybody was focusing on when the non-white share would get and you know you had people saying well in february 2026 20, texas will be a blue state and so after the election of 2018 actually i think it was nate cones very good went and looked at it we beto didn't get any more young voters than you would expect he didn't get any more non-white voters than you would expect where the difference was was the west side of houston the north side of dallas the north side of san antonio you know, where, where you had all of the, you, you actually have swing voters. They keep telling you you don't, but how the hell you get, you win by eight and a half percent and you don't have swing voters? Of course you do. And it, they want to they go to myth, go look at, the, 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 look at Kentucky, look, compare the counties that Andy carried to what we did in 2016, or even what we did in 2015. The, the myth of the, 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 the left and the right is, you, you got to pick one of us that are no swing voters. And I am not a moderate. I am a liberal. I, I, I don't want, I, 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 I find, don't walk around with an ideology. I, I think we can advance policies that in my life I could, only could dream that we could do. But you can, you, you can go too far. Look at the UK. You just can't assume that we're in this kind of favorable moment so we can do anything we want and win. That's dumb. That's dangerous. It's Albert, not, we don't do that. Albert, I think you were born in Virginia, right? I was. Is Virginia now a democratic state? Yeah, it is. It's blue. Uh, it really is. I mean, you look at the, the gubernatorial elections, the Senate elections. Uh, they had a, a, a really um, a gerrymandered um, uh, House uh, uh, districts. That was fixed. And now I think they control either half or one more than half. Uh, they control the state senate and they control the uh, the state house. It's a, it's not a deep blue state, but it's a uh, it's a it's a if, light blue. If you like a really want to, if like young people say, you you really want to do help the Democrats, just say that you know whatever. What do you what what I think you should do? Go to North Carolina. North Carolina, we have a better chance the Democrats win North Carolina, Wisconsin. North Carolina's got a highly competitive presidential race. They have a highly competitive Senate race. They're going to have probably four or five maybe highly competitive house races. North Carolina is the new Virginia. Governor's race? Yeah, governor's race. Huge governor's race. We had a really good governor, a Democratic governor in North Carolina. I think North Carolina is in Arizona, but it's like. Well, North Carolina has had some great Democrats. you got two senators. In Georgia, the new Democratic Party is going to be North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, Arizona. Arizona is the next Colorado. Not comes the next Virginia. Didn't people say that uh, at the end of November of 1976? Say what? That uh, the new Democratic Party was Georgia and North Carolina and those places? That was Jimmy Carter's century. Yeah, but really I mean, Carter carried, you know what put Carter over the top was Mississippi. Okay, yeah, that, that's, that, that was the deciding. And he lost California. Yeah, right. I, yes, I mean, yeah. It, 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 you know, carried West Virginia and lost California. I mean, look, 
politics is not, and everybody keeps doing the same thing. It's a static business. Right. It's not. It's dynamic. It changes. In, in this field in the Democratic Party, it's, something's going to happen because there are just too many people that are too involved. If you, the levels of interest are, they're not high. They're astronomical. They're astronomical. And you, you're going to see that. And it's, I don't think this thing is going to be a straight line where we just kind of predict these front runners are going to do that. I think we're going to see twists and turns here. I really do. Do you think one of those twists and turns might be the emergence of Mayor Pete? Al? Oh, I don't think that's out of the question. Um, look, uh, if someone had said to me two years ago the Democrats are going to nominate a 37-year-old uh, gay guy who's been the mayor of a city with 104,000 people, I said, come on, you've got to be, you know, get serious. But I would have said if someone had said to me 11 years ago they're going to nominate uh, some African-American guy whose middle name is the same as the worst Middle East dictator uh, uh, around, I would have said you're crazy too. I, I, I wouldn't bet on it. But he's a really impressive candidate. He is incredibly smart. Uh, he went up to New York to talk to a bunch of those fat cats up there, big financiers, private meeting, and they came away dazzled, and he didn't pander to them. He is really smart. Now, can he sustain that? Are the odds still what I described a few moments ago? A little bit better, but, you know, I, I don't think you can rule him out. Yeah, I, look, in, in politics, the people that are really smart, they're predictors. They, they say, well, this, you get this, this percent of, of, of Allegheny and that percent of this, and you get this percent of that, and the polling is this. And that's fine. There's an entire political prediction industry. I have a lot of friends in it. I have never viewed myself as a predictor. I viewed myself as an effector. I, I, so what if, if you go to the doctor and you get a physical and he says you're going to drop dead in nine months and three days, and nine months and three days you drop dead, is that a good doctor? <laughs> but he wants somebody to say, well, you, look, if you, you want to go beyond nine months and three days, if you do X, Y, and Z, then somehow or another we equate expertise with predictability. I don't know what's going to happen. I, but but I, think, I think if you do the following things, you have a chance to be in position for good things to happen to you. I paid people to predict when I ran campaigns. All right, but when I say, all right, well, we, you know, so let's look, you know, so you, you Philly suburbs, you got the, the city of Philadelphia, you got the T, you got Western Pennsylvania, you got Valley, you know, and okay, how do we, how do we get 39% as opposed to 37 in the T? The answer's hard, <laughs> but you try. And, and, and that's, we tend to value, you know, you go to the lawyer and say, I predict you're going to lose the case. Oh, well, shit, he was right, we lost the case. <laughs> No, how, you, how are we going to win it? And that's what we got to think about as Democrats. And not just me. Everybody in this room is politically involved. Have, you know people. Most of you have probably donated at one point or another to a political campaign in your life. This is important. This is very important. Think about it. Think about it. You know, I, uh, one of my favorite lessons in politics about 15... 17 years ago, I was, uh, my wife and I were out in Arizona, and we spent a weekend in Sedona, a lot of time with McCain, I'm down by the creek one night, and he, this was 2002, and he and John Kerry were actually good friends, and fellow Vietnam veterans, and he said, I just told John Kerry last week, I said, John, you know something, this hero stuff is great, you know, I love it, it's terrific, he said, the hero stuff will get you in the door, but you better have something to say when you get in that door, and he said, John Glenn was a bigger hero than either one of us could ever hope to be. 
and he didn't have anything to say when he got in the door. And that's what happened, I think, this year to Kamala Harris. She got in the door, and she didn't have anything to say. And I, I, I'm not in the prediction business either, because the track record was so bad. But the reason that I wouldn't discount Mayor Pete is because it looked, first of all, he came back, he was down and he came back, which is a mark of a, you know, a resilient campaign. Secondly, you know, he, he seems to have something to say. Now, is that sufficient? I don't have any idea. But I don't think he can be, you know, counted out. So we didn't really get your view of, of Mayor Pete. I, we interviewed him, Alvin and I had, it, I, I find it charming. I, I, I told us, I said, Mayor, I'm gonna tell you a story and you're gonna know exactly where it's going in the middle so you, 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 you'll have an answer. True story, in the 50s, Earl Long was the governor of Louisiana and he was a kind of a uncouth deal maker, he was a really good guy, <laughs> a really good guy in, in many ways. He was just a real politician and it'd be up. So the, the better people in the state, the, the kind of chamber of commerce types, they, they, they said, well, we need to get a, a really guy project a good image Louisiana. So they came up with a guy named Fred Pruce, who was a Ford dealer in a little town about 10 miles south of Arkansas called Farmerville, Louisiana. So the way that Earl handled it, he says, you know, Fred Pruce is a fine Christian gentleman. He, is, he really is. He's very involved in the community and he's so honest. If you buy a Ford, you go see Fred, he's gonna give you a good deal. Better than that, better than that. If something happens and you got like a maintenance issue, he's gonna give you a loan. You're not gonna be high and dry if you go to Fred. But the problem is, if you gotta buy two Fords, you gotta go somewhere else because he ain't big enough to handle a deal. That's political skill. That's conceding your opponent's strength and then killing him with the one weakness. And I said, Mayor Pete, you are by, by every stretch you speak Norwegian and you, you got a lot of ideas. How are you going to go? You're really going to go from being mayor of a city of 104,000 people to president of the United States, which I think it's a, not an a unfair question. It's not an unfair question. And, you know, he gave a, I thought was a pretty good answer, and he'll get that more and more. I mean, that's going to be, you got to doubt about everybody on, in, in everything. It's okay. It's all right in politics. You, you don't do that. I, I think he's, in some of his stuff, like the 15-member Supreme Court, he, he can get a little out there. But for the most part, I think he's an engaging, bright man that has a deep understanding of the, of, of the world around him. And I, I would certainly consider voting for him. You know, I'm kind of undecided on it, but it, I, I, I certainly wouldn't write him off. And, and, and watch that next debate. The target will be on him. Every time someone starts to climb or soar in the polls, whether it was Biden in the very beginning and then it was Harris when she had that good debate and then it was Warren the last time, you know, the movement over the last week, the perception at least is, it's been Buttigieg, which means he'll be a target of the other, which is as, as it ought to be. We'll see, and we'll see how he handles it. Yeah, this is gonna happen. It's a, that's okay. You know, if he handles it, and he needs that. He needs to he show does. that he, 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 you know, the guy's like cool under fire. And people will say, well, you know what? I, I'll trust him in, in, in yeah. foreign well, policy. You know, I'll trust I'm, him with that. I mean, he, he needs he needs that for people to vote for him. He needs to be under pressure. He needs to be under fire. He needs to be under attack. You One know? of Mayor Pete's um, uh, themes is something that about eight or nine of our guests have asked about, and that's elimination of the Electoral College. Al? Stupid. How you, you think the people of Wyoming are going to say, well, we just don't want to have all this power. We're going to give it to, get to let California run away. I mean, I, I mean 
you I can, agree. I, it's aspirational. It got nothing to do with 2020. I, I, exactly. And I don't even think the people of Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or North Carolina who are worried about you know their health care, who are worried about their taxes, maybe worried about their kids going to college. I mean, I, I think it's one of those esoteric issues that I, I don't know. If I were to start all over again, I'm not sure what I would do. You know, given the last election, it makes me rethink my support for the Electoral College, but I just don't, it doesn't matter. Yeah, there's this idea that a friend of mine has, and it's actually that the state legislatures can direct the electors, and if you, and now I think like 100 states, like 150, 160 electoral votes do that. If it, in the, the enabling legislation says when you hit 270, it kicks in. So the Pennsylvania legislature could say, we're going to direct the, our electors to vote for the winner of the popular vote. I th that might pass constitutional muster, but you're not going to get a constitutional amendment. That's pretty clear. I don't even That's like that. I, what we need is a constitutional amendment that says nothing in this Constitution shall prohibit the ability of Congress to regulate money in politics. You want to have a constitutional amendment? That's the constitutional amendment you have. Is There's too much money in politics. It's too corrosive. It's leading to people to not have any trust in government, and it's dangerous to the future of America. We have got to do something about Citizens United. That is doable. You can do that. That is the 28th Amendment. It's not the third. And why don't we, why don't we concentrate on things that we can do as opposed to some esoteric debating club question? I remember vividly, Al, in your office having this conversation about the Electoral College, and I adopted this view. He uh, said, doesn't really matter because the Electoral College always or almost always follows the, the vote. But how come, how come twice since, 19, since 2000 it hasn't? Well, I mean, first of all, the, the better example, of course, is last time. 2000 was a tie. It was right, a tie. Sure. And, and I think there was some, I mean, I think I will always believe that Al Gore really carried Florida. But it was a tie, even if he carried Florida by, you know, 4,000 votes. And so those, those things are going to happen. I mean, there's no, way to, no easy way to break a tie. 2016 was, was different, and as I say, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's alarming when you look at it. I would say, and, and maybe James will disagree, I will say in part at least some of the responsibility lies with the Clinton campaign that, uh, you know, first of all, they stopped polling in three weeks out, which was kind of a dumb thing to do. But, uh, you know, I don't want to take that horrible example and say, okay, we're going to change the whole system. I'd like, I only have one imperative. That's to get Trump out. The Electoral College is not going anyway in 2020. This is a debating society. Go to Carnegie Mellon and Pitt and have them have a Duquesne and have a debate off on it. I don't care. But it's not, it's damn sure going to be there in 2020. It's the truth of the matter is, it's going to be there for a while to come. But what difference does it make? You got to play the hand you got. That's the hand we got. We got this guy in there. We got to get him out. It's, this is going to be the rule. We've got to carry Pennsylvania. You don't have to worry about anything else. You've got one mission. One, and you're lucky. You're right here in maybe one of the three most important states in the United States. Say, so let's hit the pause button on the Electoral College, and we'll talk about it in December of 2020. Same thing, by the way, with enlarging the Supreme Court. Yeah, after the terrible things that they did to Merrick Garland and everything, you could say it's an outrage, et cetera, et cetera. It ain't going to happen. It's ridiculous it to talk happen about it. I'll, I'll tell you what, you if know, the FDR Democrats has... win the Senate and the House and the presidency, I wouldn't be against packing the court. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that there are nine people. I'd go from yeah, baseball but, team but, to but, football. But, but hold on. It's, 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 it's not a winner. It's not going to happen. 1938. 
Uh, I, I, again, I, if, if you, you ask me, right, I, I wouldn't be, I, and I'm not, very, I, I, I like, I wouldn't talk about it in the campaign, it's probably not going to happen, don't know, but I would not dis dismiss that as an idea that's out of hand at all. I have. Yes. We disagree. All right. We disagree. <laughs> we have, we've had, we've, we've gone through several of your questions, um, but here's one. Um, that I've been interested in, James. Somebody asked how Mary is and uh, what you guys talk about at dinner, but I just want to ask you, uh, I just want to ask you if you have any insights on George and Kellyanne Conway. Yeah. Somebody said they the new James and Mary, and I said, good, take the baton, go. <laughs> I've been James and Mary since 1992, so it's long enough. Uh, uh, she's doing fine, she had a little health issue with an ear, but I think it's going to resolve itself. And, uh, you know, people are married and, you know, I'm, I'm just not defined by my politics. I have a lot of other interests in life and, you know, so when I come home, we just don't argue about the minimum wage. So what? <laughs> and I, you know, I tell people like, you know, uh, people, a lot of people have different marriage. You got people married to different religions. You got people that are married, have kids, don't like each other's kids, some different marriages. All kinds of people are married that don't like their mother-in-law. Well, I'd be, rather be married to somebody that doesn't like my politics as opposed to somebody that doesn't like my mother. <laughs> Get over it. I mean, everybody's got shit they have to deal with in their own house. <laughs> you, you know, I'm not, I'm not really interested in Kellyanne and George's marriage, but I'll tell you, and I never met George Conway, and I didn't have a particularly good feeling about him from what I knew about him, but if you haven't read the piece he wrote in the Atlantic magazine uh, a couple weeks ago, you ought to read it. It is a devastating... It really is a lawyerly psychological critique, uh, and he, it's not just a pop-off because he actually quotes and talks to a number of experts, and it's really an alarming piece to read. Oh, so, again, we got one mission here, folks. We just got one. Let's just stay focused on, on the job at hand here. Don't get distracted. All these little shiny things out there. <laughs> okay, but one of those shiny things out there is Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, I, look. I, I think she is smart. I think her life story is one of the most compelling life stories of anybody that ever ran for president. I, I just don't understand why she took this total turn to the left. I, I, it's not necessary. It's not popular. And, you know, maybe she does, but I, and I, I, I like her as a person. I, I think that she more than anybody else, and the reason that the bankers don't like her is frankly because she's as smart or smarter than they are. All right, I mean, she, she, is, she, is, she really knows more about consumer issues. Her critique of what's wrong with the country is spot on. But I, 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 of course, if she's the general election candidate, I would be for her. I don't know why we, she's talking about health care for illegals. I don't know why she's talking about you know, not having board enforcement. I don't know why she's talking about 156 million people with health insurance not having I, I don't understand it. I just, I just don't understand it. It is, to me, it is so unnecessary. And it so puts us in a position that we don't need to be in. Just say, I favor policies that expand health insurance to the maximum number of people in the United States. I mean, there's some, sometimes in politics, you know, there's a, there's a story of a guy being sworn in in a courtroom in Louisiana, and it says, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? 
And he looks up and says, which one you want, Judge? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think in politics, the truth is good enough for right now. All right? We don't have to say that there's something called the glory of the unspoken thought. Bob Casey taught me that. You don't have to talk about everything. You have a choice. And I, I, why do we talking about stuff that is, A, unworkable, not particularly popular even among Democrats? And I, I just put a life in me that I'm vexed about the whole thing. And uh, she, she's got like, you know, when Bobby Jindal, about the worst governor in the history of the United States, ran for president, he had somebody in his ear saying, don't let anybody get to the right of you. So, because he was very, I, it's almost like Senator Warren has somebody on the staff saying, don't, don't let Bernie get to the left of you. Don't let Bernie get to the left of you. Let Bernie go. Bernie's not going to win. I have a chance. Let him go. Get, go back to the Cuba, I don't know, Venezuela. I don't care where you go. You know, the um, <clears throat> Consumer Financial Protection Agency, which was Elizabeth Warren, she was the one that came up with that idea, she crafted it, she helped implement it, even though she couldn't get appointed the director, <clears throat> is really one of the really creative things that's happened in American government in the last 10 years. I give her great credit. I interviewed her about a year and a half ago. <clears throat> one of the first things she said to me about, you know, Bernie, she said, you gotta understand, there is not a little difference, there's a profound difference. He is a socialist, I am not. That's the reality. But if you go to the perception out there among Americans, you say, what's the difference between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. I assure you today that most people either wouldn't care, wouldn't know, or would shrug and say, you know, not much. Uh, and yet she herself says there's a profound difference. That hasn't come through. Yeah, in, I, I, again, I like her a lot. I, I had really, she grew up in Oklahoma, she had, if you look at her life story, and I mean, she's, it's really compelling. But it, the, the other thing is, it's something about Let's just share something with you. I, I've been I, I teach at LSU, and we have horrific climate and coastal issues. I, one of the greatest ongoing environmental disasters in the world is the disappearance of the Louisiana coastline. And I, 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 you know, the, the students will give you back whatever you want. They just want an A and go to law school or graduate school or whatever they want. And I couldn't move them. And I called a friend of mine, I got Sean Malins, who was, used to be chairman of the history department at Princeton, and I said, what's a time in history when people acted against their perceived short-term interests. And he said, try the British anti-slave trade movement. There's a book by the name of Bury the Chains by an academic at Berkeley named Adam Hoshio. And it is a great book, and it is a great story. And what I took away from that is the problem with leftists and the problem with, with a lot of us, we, don't, we, we value reason above anything else. Do you understand that there's never been a major movement in the world that has no emotion other than climate? Where is the song? Where is the song? The British anti-slave trade movement had amazing grace, probably the greatest song ever written in the history of the English language. They had wedged with China. They went with emotion. And all that we do is give people, and Senator Warren is very good, it's very, I got, a, I got a plan for that, I got a plan for this, we're going to do this, we got a plan for that. You got, people have to have an emotional connection. That's why every country has an anthem. That's why LSU has an alma mater, and 
purple and gold. That's why the Steelers have, I mean, everybody understands. That's why the Marine Corps has the hymn. They want you to feel good before you get your ass shot off, okay? <laughs> that, that's why if, if, I, if I showed you a, a, a crucifix and a cross and a, and a Star David and a crescent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is no way that I can communicate with these young kids that tells them that I have a connection with you because I fear what's happening to this planet and I particularly fear what's happening to my state. There's no song. It's stupid. And that's the nature of reason is the thing that we value more than other. If you don't have, if you don't accompany emotion with reason, it doesn't move people. And, and I mean, the problem with a lot of people is they just go in and just, we're going to fight for this, we're going to do this, we're going to fight them, we're going to take them, and we're going to crush them, and we're going to kick them, and then we're going to get them down, we're going to hit them again. And we're going to stand up, and, and that's great. But you've got to have some human element to it, some something. And I, I think that's a big issue, and I, I just, I, I, I came away from that saying this is the, every other thing, I mean, for good or bad. I mean, they, they had John Brown's body. I mean, even if I, if I took a, one day, if I took a Confederate flag and put it in the back of my pickup truck, I'll, you know exactly what I'm saying. You know exactly who I am. There's nothing that I can do that I could tell these young people, I am so with you on this, this is a real tragedy what's happening here. And think about that. Think about that. Think about your own life. You gotta have a connection to something other than reason. And not by tidal tables or, or temperature. You know, they say, well, if we can keep it below two degrees centigrade, most people don't know what the hell two degrees centigrade is. It, it just, it, 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 it's abstract. It's like a bunch of people at Carnegie Mellon coming up with something. I mean, they're smart, they're brilliant, but they don't know. They just know what they know. They put it in a computer, it's out an answer, and it's like, you know, does. Four million computations in four seconds. That's great. We need that. Well, you think CMU is playing LSU on Saturday. Huh? Yeah. There'd be a lot of emotion there. Woo, man. <laughs> Throw out the record books. Guys, this, this is being presented by a newspaper. Are you worried about the status of news, newspapers, and the way people are informed in this country? You betcha. Uh, I am. Uh, and there's reason to be. And, uh, you know, I go to these forums and people say, well, investigative reporting, uh, live and be, well, you know, yeah, the Washington Post, New York Times will do, uh, you know, a great job. They've got great business models. I think for the foreseeable future, they're going to be fine. There'll be a lot more digital. You may not see a printed newspaper uh, 10, 15 years from now, which will sadden me because I still love to read the paper paper. But, you know, you look at it and you look at the media landscape, Internet's been one of the great things that's happened to America, and one of, the, one of the great things that's happened to politics, and one of the awful things that's happened to politics. I'm a welder in Toledo, and I come home, I'm sorry. I don't have time to, to, to look at different outlets. If I'm a right-winger, I'm looking at Fox News, and if I go online, I'll look at the National Review, and if I'm a left-winger, you know, I look at MSNBC. And, um, and I think there's a real, I worry about resources, I worry about the business model, I love newspapers, I think newspapers are central to the American public dialogue, uh, and I think that, you know, if the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, uh, God help us, doesn't exist in 10 years, this community will suffer uh, a great deal, and I don't think that's going to be made up by cable television and social media and everything else. So yeah, I worry a lot, but I guess that's what old people do. Well, it's indispensable that the Post-Gazette you know, survive. I, 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 taught at Tulane for nine years. I used to give the New York Times away, had a box for free. 
And I went that one morning just to experiment. At 9 o'clock in the morning, I put a $100 bill under the third newspaper. My class started at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I went and got my $100 bill. All right. now, that's that, that's an elite American university. They just, but what, what is the news business? Who, how do you get news? Now, you hear all this talk about the, the media. The media is so powerful. The media this. The media that. The truth of the matter is, is that you want to talk about power. Remember Lyndon Johnson said, when I lost Walter Cronkite, I lost the war. Well, if you lose both Blitzer, you ain't lost anything. Who cares? Move on. <laughs> okay? It, it mean, the, the, the idea that, that the press is not nearly has the power. I remember in 1986 when we were running Pennsylvania, the inquirer said that Bob Casey has to release all of his law clients in 10 years. I had to stop the campaign. The lawyers going back and having to get waivers from everybody. Philadelphia Inquirer, don't, who cares what they say? I mean, is it the whole, now, is it important? I mean, there's really good journalism out there now. I think it's just not in the form of so much of the way that we used to get it when we younger. I mean, it's got to adapt. I, I did to the Manship School of Mass Communication at LSU. Our people tell me there are going to be more news jobs in the future than there were before. There's just not going to be at the newspaper. But there's all kinds of different ways out there that people get information. Well, there is, but, you know, there still is. A lot of those jobs are not going to be of the quality the jobs were before, and I think David can speak to that really well. And I don't, you know, actually, the New York Times is still enormously influential. Uh, their, their digital subscriptions have soared. Some of it's food and crossroads, uh, crossword puzzles. But I was with a Times reporter the other day who said that some of the campaigns go ballistic. They call, they yell, they scream, they try to get reporters taken off feeds. Doesn't matter, you're not going to call and yell and scream. So there's no Walter Cronkite, but they're still important. Now, I worry much more on the local level, and I worry it may well be that they're going to be social media sites, they're going to be all kinds of specialized publications that'll fill the gap. But I think the evidence happened in a few places, but in most right, places in it hasn't. That was in its glory days. They had a reporter that covered the Beaver County School Board, okay? Now you don't, I, I know in Louisiana, we don't have people that cover the, the local government. They don't cover the airport commission. Well, you're a great newspaper went out of business. They don't cover the sewage district, all right? But however, what I have noticed is there's a lot of good blogs and different kind of news that are out there that, that people get. It's, it, it, it's just changing. and it, 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 Nothing you can do about it. It's just what it is. Now, it, James, James, one of the great Pittsburghers, you know, former Post-Gazette reporter, John Pro, has a great question for you. She says that you've included a recipe or two in your books. Pittsburgh's a great cookie town. Do you have a cookie recipe? And what's also your recipe for civility in politics? All right, so this is my cooking secret. I'm a student of French fries. <laughs> and so I used to like cut them, rinse them, put them in a the refrigerator, put them under ice for, you know, five hours, and then do it at 325 degrees for eight minutes and then take them out and then do them at 370 degrees for two minutes. And I was very like proud of that. So I'm on an airplane, I, I read cooking magazine. And so they said, just cut them up, rinse them three times, get all the starch out of them, put them on ice for five minutes, put them in cold grease, turn it up to 370, come back and get them in 25 minutes. You will be a hero if you do that. My kids, that's the only thing my daughter just come to see me just to have french fries. That's all you gotta do. Now, Everything in our thing is, you know, well, first you got to make a roux, you know, so I like to make roux, which is just flour and oil. But uh, 
you know, yeah, that's my, what's the second part of your question? I'll just tell you how to make French fries. The recipe for civility in politics. You know, I don't, politics is not a particularly civil endeavor. I mean, if you read the book on the election of 1800, I mean, the idea that, that this was some great debating society and, you know, Stephen Douglas was a criminal. He was. He, he made a fortune off the Illinois Central Railroad. That's just so a fact. I, you know, Sydney, you wrote, you reviewed Sydney's book. Yeah. I, I mean, he, I mean, at the idea that there, there, there was a time when it was. It, but this is all Trump. This is what it is. I mean, you just have this giant, huge. I don't know what you call it. In the United States, it, 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 you can't even do anything, and people want to stop this. They want to get off of it. That's why we should win this election. I mean, we, we really want to do this. I had a coach. I was at Costco in New Orleans. The guy was like, I'm, he was the baseball coach at Holy Cross. That's not a Catholic school player. And he said, that, you know, we are here trying to teach kids, these, these high school teachers here. You know, think of all the people that are trying to teach young people and they see this. What do you do? How do you raise How do you do anything in this country? This is the moral imperative. Get this guy out of there. He's, we're not, no, we're not going to go back in politics. It's still going to be a rough and tumble thing. People are going to differ. They're going to argue. They're going to have all this. But it's not going to have this. We're not going calling people dogs. But, yeah, we had, you know, I, I don't think... I don't think you want to sanitize politics. You know, you don't want to make it into a debating society. But it, I look, I love politics. I mean, I, and I didn't mind going negative. Shit, I'd go negative in a second. <laughs> but I don't want to be like some, you know, wise old sage here saying, oh, well, if we just scratched our thin. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, tough, it's a tough, tough game, but it, it, this is not normal. I promise you, this is not normal. Albert, what, James, what, wait, wait, hang on. What James just said, Remind me, almost 40 years I've known you, I've never seen you cook a meal. <laughs> Have you ever? Every weekend. On uh, the grill. Exactly. <laughs> inside, I'm an outdoor guy. I'm not an inside guy. Never inside. You know something? There's not been a lot of diversity of views because we agree on most things. Cajun is much more interesting and colorful and informed off than I am. But we have had one incredibly intense Maybe it wasn't bitter, but polarizing debate and continued for several days. I'm going to let you all settle it tonight. And that debate was who was the greatest pitcher, the greatest major league pitcher. And the two choices, Pedro Martinez and Sandy Koufax. I'm, wait a second. I'm going to give you a vote. How many people vote for Martinez? Raise your hand. And it was over a five. Wait a second, wait a second, I have No, no, I have the floor. How many people vote for Sandy Koufax? Raise your hand. So what? Case settled, it's all over. This is a really informed, highly educated. That is not an honest framing of the question. It is. The question is over a five-year period. If you take the best five years that Koufax had and you compare it to the best five years Pedro had, you can only come to one conclusion. Well, let me rephrase the okay. question. The best five years that Koufax had versus the best five years that Pedro had. How many people vote for Pedro? Raise your hand. Five years. Now, how many people vote for Koufax? Man, this has been a great I, night. I, I do. <laughs> Who cares? How many people will go tonight and look it up? Okay? How many people? And by the way, when Pedro in like the 99-2000 season, and, and he said, when Sandy Koufax pitched, the league average was, everybody was striking everybody else. The mound, 
was like higher than it was. They had to lower the mound. When, when, when Pedro was pitching, everybody was on steroids. All right? And let me Don't tell you tell something, me Pedro not. never had to, Pedro never had to pitch right. to Roberto Clemente. Again, right. I rest my case. Okay. <laughs> so that argument is over. Anyhow, I want to thank my two friends for coming here. This I'm so, so grateful to fun. both of you. I want to thank Highmark for sponsoring this. This is being recorded live for the 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville and Al Hunt. And um, we're going to have a great, uh, uh, great debate and dinner tonight. Uh, Al, and, uh, but I just want to tell you that I'm voting for Bob Gibson. I want to tell you, and I, and I want to say, other than marrying my wife, I'm not sure I made a better decision than hiring David Schreiber. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. All right, next week, next week, we're going to have a great show. It's going to be not only American politics, but British politics, which may be crazier than American politics. Our guest will be Ed Luce, the great reporter and columnist for the Financial Times. And our own, our own version of Edward R. Murrow will be in London, James Carville. I, I definitely, I, I'll, I'll be in St. James weathering the blitz, you know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, we're, we're really looking forward to that show. And, you know, there's so much to talk about. There's Brexit, there's the whole snap election coming from Britain, but also, you know, how the British Labour Party has made itself unacceptable. And could the same thing happen to the U.S. Democratic Party? That not, not impossible. Got to tune in next week. Yes, sir. Be, be there, be square, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs>